Hey folks, I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This is the conservation season, and I wanted to jump right into this week's story because, well, it's a bit of a doozy. This week, we're chatting with some folks from an organization called the Florida Native Plant Society. When I drafted out this season a couple of months ago, I had 10 episodes written out, and none of them were about plants, outside of the episode about our seagrass and their relationship to the manatees. Luckily, two episodes were pushed back to accommodate more research, you'll hear from them next year, and a listener on the show's Instagram made a suggestion. They suggested I talk to the Florida Native Plant Society and share their work on the show, so I did, and what I found in reaching out is that my failure to consider plants in the story of conservation is not a new mistake for a person to make. It's actually an issue that plant conservationists must deal with every day. I mean, we have a whole term for it it's called plant blindness. That is Valerie Anderson. So I am Valerie Anderson. I'm the Director of Communications and Programming for the Florida Native Plant Society. So the Florida Native Plant Society has been around since 1980, and we preserve, conserve, and restore those are all three different things, the native plants and native plant communities of Florida. So you mentioned those are all three different things. Tell me, tell me, tell me about what that means, what, what, what the difference between those things are. So preservation means preserving existing intact habitats as they are. And then conservation is taking habitats that may have been slightly modified and making sure that they stay in the state that they're at. And the restoration is taking degraded habitats and restoring them to higher quality. That's quite a mission statement, one that has been part of the Florida Native Plant Society, or FNPS, since their inception way back in 1980. It was a group of people in Orlando who just realized that this was not being covered, that, you know, the conservation was focused on animals rather than plants and that plants were being left out of many local, state, and federal conservation efforts. And, you know, animals are very charismatic, they're cute, they move, uh, but if they didn't have a habitat to live in, if they didn't have native plants to consume, to shelter in, these uh, endangered or threatened animals would not be able to, to survive. We have talked about this regarding so many animals this season, especially our manatees, but the ecosystem is just as vital in protecting the animal as it is in protecting the animal itself. But the ecosystem is not one homogenous thing. It is made up of many, many parts, including water and air and plants. But putting plants in broad categories is the problem. Valerie puts it plainly. It's no surprise that I didn't think of making an episode about plants in a season about conservation. Plants as a concept are acknowledged, but individual species of plants get ignored. Do you find that that is still a case, that people are still sort of forgetting plants in this conversation about conservation? I mean, of course. <laughs> I mean, we have a whole term for it it's called plant blindness. Whoa. Where, you know, you look and you see green and you think there's some grass over there, or there's a forest. People think, oh, you know, we need to save the trees. Uh, or they'll say, oh, I'm so glad we have these zoos, you know, so things don't go extinct. Not thinking that, you know, the reason why something, an animal even, is going extinct is because its habitat is not protected and being degraded. And that habitat is consisting of a full-fledged ecosystem with the keystone being native plants. You have to see the trees for the forest so to speak. 
Here in Florida, that's especially true because not only are our ecosystems diverse from one another, but the plant life within individual ecosystems is also itself extremely diverse. We are high ranked in the number of ecosystems we have in, in the state, but we're even higher ranked in our diversity per square meter. Whoa. So that's even more impressive than how many different kinds of ecosystems, you know, how many different kinds of cypress swamps, different kinds of scrubs, you know, different kinds of sand hills, different kinds of flatwoods. Even more so than that is how much diversity we have in a given square meter of very well-managed intact habitat. Valerie gives a few examples of places in Florida that have this diversity in them, like Gothi State Forest, the Split Oak Forest, the Jonathan Dickinson State Park, and more. These are places where you can find very diverse plants in a very diverse ecosystem. And those ecosystems need protection and specialized advocates throughout the state, which is why the FNPS has local chapters throughout the state that can fight for the green spaces near them not just broadly, to talk about the places that matter to them because they are near it, it matters to them, that's the whole point of having local chapters. Because they are local, they can know what the areas need and know how to defend them. We have 34 local chapters. How, who are the people that are involved in those? Are those experts? Are those biologists? Are those volunteers? Who are the people that are involved in the local chapters? Yeah, so, I mean, we have such a broad spectrum of members i would say we lean a little towards like the gardening community like the people who want to recreate sure. native habitat they want to see the cool bees you know they want the gopher tortoises in their yard you know those i would say those are our like bread and butter people come to the meetings they do plant swaps um but we also have a huge contingent of like the 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 botanizers, like they go out in the woods, maybe they're ecological consultants, maybe they're late in life blooming botanists, and you know, they're the people who are getting ecological contracts for assessing, you know, future conservation land. And then of course we have a lot of students who are, you know, they might be in their ecological societies or they might be wildlife majors. These local chapters provide a lot for those who participate and of course for the plants. We've spoken with so many conservation groups that rely on volunteer work to help them prosper. For example, we spoke about Eagle Watch early this year, the project that is run by Florida Audubon, mostly by volunteers to keep an eye out protecting our bald eagles. The FNPS has a similar project for a species that is far more at risk than our bald eagles. This species is a type of tree called the Florida Torea. A terea is a endangered tree that lives only in the panhandle, and it's in its, its scientific name is terea taxifolia, and we really do not want this tree to go extinct because it is basically functionally extinct in the wild. There is one big mama tree who made a cone and a few seedlings uh, a couple years ago, <laughs> um, and that's it. It's this beautiful tree that could be used as like a replacement Christmas tree. It's gorgeous and it's in these steep uh, ravines in the panhandle. And so um, there is a Torreya State Park. People have gone. So there is protected land where this tree is. We estimate that approximately 90% of these, the remaining trees are on private property, unsurveyed private property. What? Okay. Let's break this down because this is a fascinating tree facing a bizarre situation and I want to make sure we get it all right. The specific plant that we are talking about today is the Florida Torea. 
Its scientific name is Terea taxifolia. It's a type of conifer, which is a group of trees known for their cones as a means for reproduction. This includes firs and pines, hemlocks, spruce, yews. These are all conifers. So basically think of a Christmas tree. They have these pine needles to them. That is what kind of distinguishes this tree from other types of trees, this specific conal shape to them with these pine leaves on them. The Florida Terea has that same look to it. They kind of look like miniature Christmas trees in all the pictures of them that I have seen. There are two species of Terea in North America. The other is in California, but there are other Terea species in the world, including a species that is in Asia. This other species is part of the story as to why the Florida Terea is now functionally Extinct. That is its official classification. Not extinct. Functionally extinct. What does that mean? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. I need some help in discussing the Florida Terea in depth, so Valerie suggested that I call Lily Anderson Messick, the director of North Florida Programs for FNPS. She does the work with these Tereas on the ground. My name is Lily Anderson Messick, and I am the director of North Florida Programs for the Florida Native Plant Society, and I'm also the Terea Keepers Project Coordinator for the Florida Native Plant Society. Terea Keepers is a project that the FNPS runs with volunteers to search for and catalog the Tereas on private property and in other spaces in North Florida. We'll talk about that more in a moment. How did you get into this field? Well, I started working at a native plant nursery many years ago, and I um, became a complete, obs- completely obsessed with native plants, and I became the CEO of that native plant nursery for many years, and I had planned to purchase and own the nursery, and that didn't work out, and I ended up, FNPS reached out to me when they heard I wasn't going to be buying the nursery, and and um, wanted me for this job, so I am... Um, was very happy to to accept it and I've had I've been working with FNPS for a little over two years now and it's been so much fun so yeah I'm very happy <laughs> so I mean you you mentioned the Tereas how how did that sort of become the thing that became your area of focus with FNPS well so the Terea is a federally endangered species which means that there is federal money that is allocated towards the conservation of that species and the Florida Native Plant Society um, have, have received several different grants from Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services and U.S. Fish and Wildlife. Um, and also through uh, Native Plant Society members and other conservation-minded individuals who contribute to this project as well. So let's go through this step by step. You've met the Terea, but let's talk about the situation that they are in. Let's talk about where they are grown because it's unique. I'm always surprised when I hear of a tree that grows in like a very, very specific area and the Florida Terea grows in one spot in the panhandle and that's it. They, they don't really naturally grow anywhere else. That This area is it. It has a very narrow native range, which is pretty much isolated to the eastern side of the Apalachicola River in the ravines that feed into the river. Wow. And just in the Florida panhandle, and one tiny population above the Florida, above the Georgia line. And so it had a, it always had a very native, narrow native range, but um, around the 40s, they started noticing that 
the trees were dying. And by the 1960s, pretty much every single mature tree had died back. Um, they were re-sprouting from the root, but then they would only get so large and then they would die back again. The Torreo would grow in these specific areas in this specific region for generations until suddenly they started dying. And when they would grow back, they would only grow so much and then they would die again. They would, they would reach a certain age and then they just drop dead. Nobody understood why this was happening at first. In the 30s, you know, were about the time that people really started building houses and moving out there and planting gardens right. out there. And so they brought non-native plants and planted them out there. And it's mo very likely that that is the introduction for this fungus. Enter this fungus that is called Fusarium. And so for many years, there have been all kinds of hypotheses, you know, proposed about what is killing the Terea. It wasn't until 2011 that the University of Florida actually isolated a fusarium species, which is a type of fungus that um, hadn't, was new, to, completely new to science. And they suspect, uh, the forest pathology lab there suspects that the fungus evolved with relatives of Terea in Asia and was probably brought here through the horticultural industry on, you know, relatives of Treya on plants. And, uh, and then it, it spreads by spores and is airborne. And so then it spread to the Treya, which it is, you know, it, because it's a close relative, it probably popped onto that. And, and then the Treya has ha, have not evolved with it, did not have any natural defenses to it. And so, that is what is actually killing the species. Um, there might be contributing factors because the fusarium is, can be present in the plant and not kill it until the plant is stressed by, you know, a variety of factors it could be, or multiple factors. And then the fusarium kind of takes advantage and kills the tree back down to the roots. So this fungus that we're talking about, the Fusarium, it existed in Asia and it had lived with other relatives of the Florida Terea there. Not the Florida Terea, but other types of Terea. These relatives had evolved to live with the fungus. They could survive the fungus's impact on their lives because they evolved together. When that fungus was brought over, likely with non-native horticulture back in the 30s, it clung to the Florida Terea, which had not evolved with this fungus, and the Terea suddenly began to suffer seriously from the fungus. This is a problem that has happened before in America. There is this tree that a lot of botanists and environmentalists know called the American chestnut. The American chestnut had a relative in Asia and this fungus had grown to live with this other type of a chestnut tree. And when this fungus jumped over to America, it effectively wiped out the American chestnut. It's gone. That very well may happen to the Terea because of the exact same situation. Yeah, so there are species of Terea in Asia. Uh, they're in the same genus, okay. different species. And so, you know, at one point, you know, the continents have shifted. Of course. And, right, right, right. <laughs> and, and so there are relatives over there, but they evolved in a completely different ecosystem with different, you know, different bacteria and microorganisms and insects and every and herbivores. So um, they ad adapted as they um 
as they evolved to those those um, fellows. The ecosystem around the tree is part of why the terea is facing these troubles because the tree's condition can be exacerbated by these things called stressors or stresses. What exactly is a stress for a tree? Well, it's a number of environmental factors. In the wild, as opposed to like in a yard, the trees might um, might be rubbed by deer and that would cause like an opening in the bark and that would cause a stress or they might experience a hurricane, for instance, <laughs> or they might experience drought or excessive rainfall and floods. They might experience insect damage. Any, all, a variety of things can happen when a plant isn't being cared for by a person, you know. So um, the trees would have been adapted to all of those stressors until the fusarium added that, you know, took advantage of these stressed trees. Lily mentions a hurricane, and I'm sure you noticed that we shared a dry laugh there. That is because the region that we are discussing, this area where the Florida Terrea pretty much only grows, was recently devastated by a hurricane called Hurricane Michael back in 2018. We've talked about it before, in fact. We've talked about the longleaf pine, a species of tree that grew in the panhandle and also, similarly, is facing this very serious crisis because many of the trees were killed by Hurricane Michael. Go back and listen to that episode because it's a parallel story, so to speak. And then Hurricane Michael hit in 2018, and that really affected the area of the panhandle where Trey are. And so what we're doing now is because... The Trea has been well surveyed on public lands in that area. It, it has not been surveyed on private lands well. And so we, um, I worked reaching out to privately owned, you know, private landowners in the area within its range and uh, seeing if we can have access to their property to survey for the tree. And then, uh, and all of this whole project is in collaboration with the Atlanta Botanical Garden. So they've been working with the species for many years, since like the 80s, I think. Um, and they have um, a whole grove of terea that they have been growing. Um, what It's called an ex-situ collection, which means it's being grown outside of its range for the purpose of conservation in order to reintroduce it eventually. Uh, and so... And to also preserve the genetic diversity of the species. Genetic diversity is a concept that Lily and I talk a lot about during our chat. We know that human beings are genetically diverse, so why shouldn't the same rule be applied for trees? They have a diversity of genetics within their species, and if we are to preserve the terea in the long term, we need to preserve the variety of genetics within their population as well. So we need to collect a lot of terea to make sure that that genetic pool that we're preserving is diverse. But because the terea are so limited, and many are actually on privately owned land, that is a very different kind of work, and sometimes it can be dangerous. Luckily, Lily is up to the task. We are surveying privately owned lands in this region because they haven't been surveyed, and uh, we're trying to get as many, we're trying to 
accrue as much of a diverse, a genetic diversity in this ex-situ collection as possible because that will, you know, the bigger genetic diversity you have in a species, the more likely it is to be flexible and persistent and to survive. And so if we had a narrow gene pool of just the tree, the cuttings that we had collected from publicly owned lands, it doesn't represent the entire population, the genetics of the entire population. And each one of those individuals that's genetically different is is an important contribution to the genetic diversity of the species as a whole. And so what I'm doing, like today, I... um, was surveying in a property that had been briefly surveyed in 2009. And so they knew there were trees on this property, but we never collected DNA. They never collected DNA and they never collected cuttings of the tree. So we didn't have the genetics of these trees preserved. And so I went out there today and I had some um, points for these individual trees uh, and so the lat long the you know the um, location of the tree and I'm climbing up and over a whole bunch of felled trees because the entire region is kind of a mess after Hurricane Michael it was an extremely you know category five very strong storm that really really rumpled these <laughs> ravines and so Um, probably nobody's been in there since 2009, since before the hurricane. And so I went to those points and, um, some of them were still there and some of them weren't. Um, and I also found some trees that they hadn't recorded. And so, and what I did when I found a tree or came upon one is I collect DNA. So just needles from the, you know, the branches in order for the Atlanta Botanical Garden to do uh, genetic kind of testing uh, to see the diversity of the genes of the species across the populations. And then I also take a cutting and that those cuttings are then planted and grown at the Atlanta Botanical Garden so that they can become trees. And, and when they're grown, uh, under care then they can reach sexual maturity and actually produce seeds or nuts and so it's um it's important for you know to continue to have genetic a genetically diverse population and more nuts means more more genetic diversity so i carry a backpack with um plastic bags with wet sphagnum moss and I carry sterile razors so that I'm not I'm not cutting you know one tree with the same you know thing that I cut the last one with and then I um, keep them I get back to the car and I wrap them all up in little saran wrap (laughs) and then I keep them in the in a cooler and then I'll ship them to the Atlanta Botanical Garden that's amazing and they'll grow them yeah yeah so the the population, Teratex folia is considered functionally extinct because most, pretty much all of the trees are not, they don't reach sexual maturity before they get knocked back by the fungus. There are, I have seen some, you know, sexually mature male trees, um, but uh, rare, it's very uncommon to see a female. 
and the females are what produce the cones, the female cones that would have the seeds in them. In them. So, um, so they're functionally extinct. So being able to reproduce and have a reproductive population at the Atlanta Botanical Garden, you know, collection is really important for the future survival of the species because UF is doing work right now to figure out how this fusarium, because it's new to science, we don't know what chemicals it uses to function, so we don't know exactly how to treat it. And Atlanta Botanical Garden is doing um, experiments right now on different fungicides, treating it with different fungicides, but it's very likely that we'll find a way to treat it because there are a whole lot of fusarium species that are common in agriculture and there have been lots of fungicides that have been created for treatment of those species so it's very possible that we'll be able to treat it and then reintroduce it to the ravine so if a diversity of genetics in this tree is saved and grown and preserved and if we find a way to treat this fusarium then this tree can be reintroduced to these ravines in a sustainable way, and they won't be totally wiped out of existence. But I said if a lot there. There are a lot of factors at play. I asked Lily, what happens if the Terea, the Florida Terea, is totally gone? And she reminds me that they basically are gone. All the important things that we need to do to bring them back, that would be amazing, but like she said, they are functionally extinct. We cannot see what has been happening for the last century since the Florida Terea has been dying, so we have no idea the impact that that has had on the ecosystem and the climate around it. But combating the fungus on the Florida Terea is not just for the Terea's survival. It's also for the survival of many other trees as well. The big issue right now is that UF has done research and it has shown that the fusarium can jump to other genera of trees including pines and also hemlocks um, which are already very you know imperiled along the east coast and there are some groups of people who who um, are very uh, what's the word passionate about Terea and the story of the Terea and they want to plant and they think that the Terea is dying because of climate change which it certainly is an added stressor like warmer winters sure. but it's not the cause of the actual cause of the decline and they are planting Terea outside of its na native range in the Carolinas and up the east coast and that they are effectively spreading this fusarium, which could cause, you know, devastating impacts oh. on eastern forests. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. It's often the story in conservation of people, you know, doing something, thinking that they're helping. They come up with a solution. <laughs> and and in reality, you're we're actually, you know, actually causing harm. But, but yeah, so that's the big kind of push that we're trying to educate. We are working as hard as we can to educate the public to not plant Terea taxifolia outside of its narrow native range because 
we suspect that all of the plant material of Drea is infected with this fusarium and the fusarium is has proven to kill other genera further north. I mean, you're working on a plant, running a program for a plant that you've said is functionally extinct and mm-hmm. is facing problems that are difficult to manage and difficult to prevent from spreading. I, I, I don't know how to phrase this question, but like that is a no-win scenario for many people, I'm sure. I mean, that 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 is a... To say that something is functionally extinct, that that is coming back from zero, right? Like that's that's rebuilding yeah, something well, that's gone. There are a lot of conservation stories of like of you know animals and plants going completely extinct and then being reintroduced successfully. You know, like wolves, for instance. Sure. Um, so it's not impossible. It's certainly within um, you know the possibility that we could. figure out a treatment for the fusarium and like I said there's been lots of successful treatments for fusarium species we just have to figure out which one is the best for this species and then and then we can reintroduce and plant we're doing seed trials as well uh, in different areas um, inside of its native range and trying to see how the seeds are doing do you mind saying if you feel confident about this project going forward about about the results of this that it could be something with a maybe not a happy ending but an in, a, 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 a an inclining a, a prospering ending i think it's certainly possible that that we could successfully reintroduce Terea. definitely the thing i'm most concerned about is the spread of the fusarium along the east coast and it getting out becoming so widespread it's untreatable you know, that's what's really concerning to me. Yeah. And that's why I keep trying to impress upon people to not plant this this rare tree. Yeah. We have talked so much this season about the balance of human beings and the nature around us. How many times have I talked about it? How Aldo Leopold was terrified of what it meant for a person to get close to something in order to protect it. That is the tightrope walk of doing the right thing while not destroying a thing further. It's nearly impossible. How do we manage it? This is a species of tree that is dying from a fungus that human beings brought to its ecosystem and this fungus is killing it. It is preventing it from regrowing and the stressors around the tree are getting worse. Some of those stressors, though not all, are being exacerbated by this climate emergency and now the fungus is looking like it can jump to other trees. That is... It's dire, right? It's bleak. And I sometimes hate how often I have to tell you stories like this. I I wish I could just talk about the dozens of deer that we have in Florida or the birds that are blossoming in abundance, but sometimes we got to talk about this. And man, you can hear it in my voice during the interviews with both Valerie and Lily. Every time they say something about how gone these plants are, I am just gobsmacked. They are bringing something back from the dead, basically. And that is a Herculean feat, to say the least. And by the way, this is not the first time that a Florida plant has faced this level of extinction, and it may not be the last. 
Valerie reminds me of the Sable Trail Pipeline, a natural gas pipeline that cuts through large sections of Florida and Florida ecosystem. It was built a few years ago amidst much protest from environmentalists and conservationists who saw how dangerous it would be to just drop a pipeline in the middle of this ecosystem. It was built and its impact is being felt all over, but in particular with a very unique species of plant that Valerie tells me about. And this, there's this mint here. Do you remember the Sable Trail Pipeline? I do. I do. All right. Well, I mean, right, ecological disaster. Well, did you know that there is a population of a mint called Blushing Scrub Bomb? And it is the only population, the only known living population of this Dicerandra modesta. And guess which pipeline got put right through the only population oh, man. of this plant? As if it didn't matter. Man. And is that just gone? Is that mint just gone? No, because we are working really hard to make sure it is not just gone. <laughs> I mean, I you know, we have work days. We work days almost every week for a month removing invasive species because, of course, the you know the pipeline brought in all this this Nepal grass and um, you know disturbed the habitat and you know actually literally destroyed um, dicerandra plants. You know and um, bury the seed bank so they're not coming up as little seedlings anymore and the management is really challenging now so they're not burning enough to have these open spaces that the mints need so to me it's like the terrea is that but 50 years ago wow so like somebody took this plant for granted 50 years ago so what it has all these issues. I see what you're saying. So so the mint could be in the same condition as the Torreya is in 50 years from now, 50 years in the future. So you're fighting a problem that was already made, but you are like trying to save the last scraps of it. Bef and now and you're trying to prevent that from happening to the mint. Am I understanding you correctly? Right. Okay. And you know, I I'm not the kind of person that gets very depressed about these things. But it's <laughs> it is frustrating that people can't see the plants and that the policymakers can't see the plants and that you can't, it just doesn't really matter to so many people that this plant doesn't go extinct. This beautiful mint that you walk through it and your shoes smell like a weird spearmint menthol mix for weeks after. And people are not having that experience and they, they don't know that this is valuable to them. It's not valuable. Why is it not valuable? I mean, plant blindness, you mentioned earlier, I mean, it's sounding like it is like an active, destructive problem, so to speak. Like, that that people don't consider plants in this conversation is is having an active negative impact on the plants of Florida. Is, is that too broad an assumption? No, that is exactly what's happening. Man. How can people combat that problem how can we convince everyday people to remove those shutters to remove those horse blinders so to speak about the natural native plants of our ecosystem how, how can how can we do that to prevent this from happening to even more plants well the first thing people need to do is join their local chapter of the florida native plant society <laughs> 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 and then they need to i mean I think the first place people can really connect with plants are cultivated plants. So they need to go on a yard tour. Almost every chapter runs these yard tours where instead of seeing a queen palm and 
you know, some Thai plants and, you know, a pindo palm uh, or a podocarpus that you can go in and see beautiful native plants just filled with pollinators. And you can say, oh, actually, it is beautiful. It's not some scraggly little weedy thing that my HOA is going to hate. And then once you do that, then you go on a hike and you see that plant in the natural area and you go, this is Florida. You know, Florida's not Disney World. Florida's not endless strip malls or I-4. Florida is, it's nature and it's still around us. And you can connect with it like, like right now within like five minutes outside your door. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I am so glad that you are here. I'm so glad that you've spent this conservation season with me. There is one episode left, and it's a really special one. I'll tell you about that in a second. If you have somehow only stumbled onto this show on this episode. This is a great season for you to jump in on. All of the episodes this season have been around the topic of conservation, and a lot of them share a lot with the story of the Florida Terea. So go listen to the other episodes this season and binge them because the finale is coming out next Monday. If you're looking for more Wait 5 Minutes, there is a website just for you. Go to WFMPod.com for transcripts of past episodes, additional photographs from the past seasons, and soon-to-come transcripts of this season and last season as well. I'll be updating those so that by the time we start next season in February, you'll have all the transcripts from the last year available to you. So head to WFMPod.com to start exploring now. You can also pick up Wait 5 Minutes merchandise at Cast and Clay on Etsy. If you're looking for a good holiday present for your Florida-loving relative, I think some of these Wait 5 Minutes stickers are just for you. Cast and Clay itself is run by one of my best friends, Sophie Aparicio, who designed each of these stickers alongside the rest of their catalog. There is a Drink More Water sticker, a Wait 5 Minutes sticker, and a sticker featuring the show's subtitle about Florida by a Floridian. Grab them individually or as a set of three at Cast and Clay on Etsy. Head to the link in the description to pick up your or WFM merch now. If you did enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review. It helps the show become more visible, and it means a lot to me, especially because I've got some very interesting seasons on the horizon, and I'd like to know what stories you want to hear. This episode would not exist if a listener had not told me to check out the FNPS. So if there's something you want to hear on this show, reach out. I want to hear from you. I mean it. I really do. So head to WFM pod, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or send me an email, WFMPodgmail.com. Reach out. I want to hear from you. I could not have made this episode without Valerie Anderson and Lily Anderson Messick. Their work is vital and they were such wonderful chats. I hope to have them both on the show again very soon because their work is fascinating and important and man, it's just great to see work like theirs getting done. So hopefully next year you will hear an episode of me and Lily trudging through the ravines of North Florida. I'll keep you posted. All right. Next week is the finale of the conservation season, and it's just going to be you and me. No guest. I'm going on a trip, and I'm bringing all the things that I learned in this conservation season with me, because there is a very important animal in the story of American conservation that you can find in Florida. Not many people know that. There are bison in Florida, in Payne's Prairie State Park, and 
I think a really nice way to end this conservation season would be to take a trip there together. So, next Monday, a search for the Florida bison to end this conservation season. And then after that, the week after that, is the second annual Wait 5 Minutes holiday special. I'll tell you more about that next week. Until then, be good to yourself. Be good to others. Look into getting vaccinated to support your community around you. And if it's time to get your booster shot, make sure you're getting that as well. And of course, as always, drink more water. Drink more water. Do it. See you Monday.